0: back to The Demon Drink. This is episode two, Fountains of Wine. Welcome back to The Demon Drink. I'm Lucy Cogan. I'm Alice Major. Now, we talked about last week how Irish people are well known for liking to have a good time. We pride ourselves on being a nation that knows how to enjoy itself. And maybe we are just more fun loving than the rest of them. But it's also true that wherever you go in the world, there's an Irish bar there to meet you. Our national love of crack is inextricably bound up in our fondness for drink. In today's episode, though, we're going to think about a particularly hard partying period in Ireland's history. This is the time of the Georgian era, the Protestant ascendancy. We'll be chronicling some of the most debauched parties Ireland has ever seen, and we'll be thinking about how that obsession with with claret, which Jonathan Swift called Irish wine, we were so fond of the drink in Ireland, what that tells us about the period and why it came to an end. The culture of Ascendancy Ireland, if you're not familiar with the term, lasted from roughly the late 17th century through to the end of the 18th century. And it is notorious for debauchery and general misbehaviour. This is the time when Irish gentlemen gained a reputation across Europe for being basically dueling, carousing maniacs. And while it's a bit simplistic... call them that. Um, It's not entirely untrue. Once the turbulence of the 17th century had passed, those with money and a position to enjoy it really, really went for it. So I'm kind of
1: thinking of the Great Gatsby in a way.
0: Yes, exactly. Exactly. If you don't know much about this period, just fix that in your mind. Brilliant. So, This letter from a friend of Jonathan Swift, in fact, uh, Elizabeth Seakin, gives us a flavour of the moment. She's describing here a ball held in Dublin Castle in 1735, and she's in particular talking about, well, the lavish entertainment and the splendid dress of the women, which was all bought in from abroad, of
1: course. Our Irish ladies made a fine appearance at the birthday at the castle. Nothing about them Irish, but their souls and bodies. I think they may be compared to a city on fire, which shines by that which destroys them. Several dealers in raw silk are broke. The weavers, having no encouragement to work up the silk, sold it and drank the money. I beg you will give my service to Dr. Sheridan, who I hope is recovered. His old friend, Lord Clancarty drinks so hard. It is believed he will kill himself before his lawsuit is ended. I hope you will like the country about a month and then order Mrs. Whiteway and me to bring a coach and six and set you safe at home, for this is no riding weather. I am with the most profound respect, dear sir, your most obliged humble servant.
0: The court of the Viceroy, or he was also known as the Lord Lieutenant, was the kind of centre of British rule in Ireland in this period. So Dublin Castle was both the centre of government and the centre of the social life of the elite in Dublin. Entertainment was therefore a serious business.
1: It was, and we have some quite colourful accounts of this, really. So, um, first of all, we know that the Duke of Ormond entertained especially lavishly. According to some household records from the period May 1682 to September 1683, he served 6,000 gallons of French Canary and Rhenish Wines. Wow. OK, if I could whistle, I would have. <laughs> <laughs> I can't whistle either, unfortunately. Um, but the Duke uh, really set the standard for hospitality for those who came after him then. OK, so... The Duke of Dorset, who was the Lord Lieutenant in the 1730s, actually had a special fountain of wine created. And this flowed all night with wine for his guests. Okay? I mean one of those. I know. Every birthday party would be better. <laughs> Way better than a chocolate fountain. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and up until the mid-1750s then, Dorset and those who came before him didn't have much to do in the way of official duties, OK? So their only real job was to carry out the king's business, as was called then. And in reality, the main business of the castle really was socialising. OK, but I think we need like a bit of context for this. Was the Irish elite so much worse than the elite in Britain or further afield? I don't think so. I mean, historians have cautioned against the stereotyping. Of the Irish aristocracy and gentry and they pointed out that those in England probably drank just as hard. So some have argued that these exhibitions of public euphoria... I love that phrase. Yeah, I know. Um, So they've argued that, that these sort of exhibitions actually developed in England in the 16th century before later being introduced to Ireland, most likely by the English gentry, at venues just like Dublin Castle. Okay, so, so not to be, well, whatever, but like
0: yet again, we're being blamed for something that they were doing themselves just 100 years earlier. Okay, so why were the Irish so frowned upon? Was it just because this was out of style
1: by then? Well, I think the reason is that even though they had a lot in common, Irish practices weren't always being accurately reported by English office holders or visitors from England. Um add to that, as we're going to see a bit later, that their descriptions of the drinking culture and especially the way that political toasting seemed to lead to shocking excess kind of leads to this idea that Irish Protestant society was exceptionally alcohol fueled. Yeah, OK.
0: Um, I know there was some anxiety about this, this reputation that the Irish aristocracy were gaining, because there's efforts in the writing to kind of correct this you know, particularly to kind of push back on the idea that they were the absolute worst in terms of behaviour. The English travel writer Arthur Young was clearly, you know, on the receiving end of quite the PR push when he (laughs) visited Ireland in the late 1770s, because he gives a much more flattering account of the customs of the upper classes in A Tour in Ireland, which he published in 1780.
2: Drinking and dueling are two charges which have long been alleged against the gentlemen of Ireland but the change of manners which has taken place in that kingdom is not generally known in England. Drunkenness ought no longer to be a reproach, for at every table I was at in Ireland, I saw a perfect freedom reign. Every person drank just as little as they pleased, nor have I ever been asked to drink a single glass more than I had the inclination for. I may go farther and assert that hard drinking is very rare among people of fortune, yet it is certain that they sit much longer at table than in England. I was much surprised at first going over to find no summons to coffee. The company often sitting till eight, nine or ten o'clock before they went to the ladies. If a gentleman likes tea or coffee, he retires without saying anything. A stranger, of Frank, may propose it to the master of the house, who, from custom, contrary to that of England, will not stir till he receives such a hint, as they think it would imply a desire to save their wine.
0: So... In his account of Irish manners, Young really connects the reputation of the Irish as mad dualists to their excessive fondness for alcohol. But he excuses the upper classes from these mad behaviours. He says indeed that they are becoming much more civilised over time and are giving up these barbaric practices. Those who still do hold with them, he kind of connects back to the, the, the real barbarians, I guess, the natives, the Catholic Irish. So there's an idea
1: here of kind of colonial infection, right? Definitely. Yeah. And I mean, outsiders frequently tended to make critical comments about Irish drinking practices. We see this especially from the 16th and 17th century English travel writers who we've mentioned already. And of course, this was all part and parcel really of a pointed critique of the native Irish. And it reflected the need of a colonising power to disparage those it was seeking to subdue and really civilise.
0: Yeah, Okay. So if these accounts are biased then, can we just cast them aside as untrustworthy anyway?
1: To a certain extent, yeah, but not necessarily because historians have tended to argue that we can't just throw them out with the bathwater because they do still give us some really decent, valuable insights into what Irish life was like then. Okay, if I
0: think about it, they do really kind of chime with what we get in Mariah Edgeworth's Castle Rackrent. Now, that was published in 1800. And there she really does present us with a portrait of the ascendancy class as a bunch of reckless, debauched idiots, I guess, who were discrediting themselves as custodians of the country with their misbehaviour. So, Edgeworth and her father, there's a bit of backstory necessary here. Mm -hmm. They were among the most kind of liberal-minded, forward-thinking of the ascendancy. But there was also a bit of self-interest to this. Edgeworth saw the writing on the wall. Society could not go on as it was with, you know, the top end behaving so recklessly and the bottom end suffering so much. Her social class were behaving like there was no tomorrow, basically, and all of this excessive consumption was a threat to their long-term survival. In Castle Rackwent, she tries to soften the blow of her critique a little by setting the book before the 1780s, but the warning was for her contemporaries, make no mistake. In this extract we're going to hear in a minute, uh, Thady, the illiterate steward who has seen many of the lords of Castle Racken come and go, gives us an account of Sir Patrick, who embodied the ascendancy gentleman's good time spirit.
2: On coming into the estate, he gave the finest entertainment ever was heard of in the country. Not a man could stand after supper, but Sir Patrick himself who could sit out the best man in Ireland, let alone the Three Kingdoms itself. He had his house, from one year's end to another, as full of company as ever it could hold, and fuller. And this went on, I can't tell you for how long. The whole country rang with his praises. Long life to him, and such. I'm sure I love to look upon his picture, now opposite to me, though I, I never saw him. He must have been a potly gentleman, his neck something short and remarkable for the largest pimple on his nose, which, by his particular desire, is still accent in his picture. Said to be his striking likeness, though taken when young, he is said also to be the inventor of raspberry whiskey, <laughs> which is very likely, as nobody has ever appeared to dispute it with him. And there still exists a broken punch ball at Castle Rackrent in the garret, which has an inscription to that effect. A great curiosity.
0: The story of Sir Patrick's death is delivered by Edgeworth with all her patented irony. Um, and after one especially heavy night of drinking, we get to see what happens to poor old Sir Patrick.
2: Just as the company rose to drink to his health with three cheers, he fell down in a sort of fit and was carried off. They sat it out and were surprised on inquiring in the morning to find that it was all over with poor. Sir Patrick.
0: Edgeworth is presenting the story of Sir Patrick for her readers as a cautionary tale, but were the lords of the period really
1: drinking so excessively that they were actually dropping down dead? Well, according to our sources, the answer sometimes is yes. So we were talking earlier about some of the shenanigans that went on in Dublin Castle during the first half of the 18th century, and in Mariah Edgeworth's time, the period she's depicting, I should say, things were no less decadent, Okay, And probably the most debauched Lord Lieutenant of all was Lord Rutland, who actually drank himself to death in the 1780s at the tender age of 33, after a great tour of all the great houses of Ireland, where he insisted on eating and drinking himself to almost bursting point at every gathering. Now, during his autopsy, the doctors found that his liver had actually been completely eaten away. And it's, it's not really that surprising when you think about his fondness for drink. The previous December, um, Rutland had been sent a consignment of 1,200 bottles of champagne, as well as some rare white wine from France. Wow. OK, that really does deserve a whistle if either of us. <laughs> we need <It's>, to learn. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting, though, that Rutland's drink
0: of choice was wine and, well, especially champagne, because... The rackrents, as they get more and more kind of debauched and go to seed, become associated with whiskey specifically. Now we talked last week about how whiskey is the quintessentially Irish drink, but it's also kind of the drink of the lower classes, right? So it says something about the fictional rackrents that as they kind of, you know, lose the run of themselves, they grow more and more fond of it. The very last Lord Rackrent, Sir Condi, drinks whiskey punch all the time. Now, that's a drink that I believe was very popular actually in the 1790s, which is after the novel is set and
1: it does actually kill him. Yeah. And I think that's our Ishqaba again, this whiskey punch. Okay. Um, and whiskey and spirits in general really are taking off towards the end of the century. Um, While it's still mostly popular among the lower classes, the widening variety of choice means that it's now starting to appeal to the more well-off as well. So historians have found advertisements by retailers for things like raspberry and cherry brandy, orange raspberry and pineapple rum, as well as raspberry and blackcurrant whiskey. (laughs) That sounds so horrible, I have to say.
0: Um, Are we talking, though, about watered down drinks or just flavoured drinks or both
1: Probably both, but in this case, sort of flavoured ones. And I think as we heard in this reading, Sir Patrick and Castle Rackrent claimed to be the inventor of this raspberry whiskey. So you actually may have unearthed yet more historical evidence, Lucy, that um, the aristocracy <laughs> were in fact developing a taste for the stronger stuff as well. I'm guessing, though, that
0: as this taste was growing in society and particularly in the upper classes, that there would have been some concern. And, you know, I mean... You're getting a lot drunker a lot quicker on whiskey than
1: on wine. Yeah, and in the 1790s, as spirits are becoming more and more popular, we see serious attempts being made to regulate she beans and public houses in general. So right. there's an act in 1791, and this drastically increases the price of spirits. And it began by stating that, and I'll just quote it very briefly the use of spirituous liquors prevails to an immoderate excess to the great injury of the health industry and morals of the people." Spiritous liquors.
0: Um, (laughs) But if spiritous liquors are so terrible, then does that mean that beer and ale and whatever are healthy, right? I mean, I'm thinking of the Hogarth print, we have like healthy beer lane, right? And then gin. Beer street and gin gin lane. lane. Exactly.
1: Yeah. And drinks like beer and wine did have a really different reputation. And remember, this is a period where everyone was drinking quite a lot and very often. So even some well-to-do women reportedly were drinking three or four glasses of wine every day. And good news for them, this was considered actually really therapeutically beneficial by 18th century doctors. So they were encouraged to do this.
0: Yeah. Okay. So this kind of the bad drinks and the good drinks really makes me think of the end of Castle Rock. And this is the, the very final lines of it. It ends famously on a question. After Thady recounts the disastrous, you know, wiping out basically of the family, a refined editorial voice takes over and opines on what the act of union this passed in 1801 might mean for Ireland and its relationship with Britain. Edgeworth was in fact finishing up Castle Rackrent just as the act was in the process of being passed. And she was thinking about what this would all mean
2: for Ireland. The few gentlemen of education who now reside in this country will resort to England. There are few, but they are in nothing inferior to the men of the same rank in Great Britain. The best that can happen will be the introduction of British manufacturers in their places. Did the Warwickshire militia, who were chiefly artisans, teach the Irish to drink beer? Or did they learn from the Irish to drink whiskey?
0: So we actually do know she was right about that. Um, The few gentlemen of education did leave the country. If you did junior cert or leaving uh, cert Irish history, you probably know about the phenomenon of the absentee landlord um, and the middlemen and all the rest of it. But the business about the Warwickshire militia, I'm thinking that's to do with the soldiers who came
1: over to put down the 1798 rebellion. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right. Um, I'd s- yeah, we spoke about this and I think it's a reference to those English soldiers that were sent over to quell the 1798 rebellion. So these would be the healthy beer drinkers as they're being depicted here. Mm. And, and I guess the idea is that they might teach the Irish better habits. So in other words, back to this idea that they could civilise them. In reality, though, drink played a part on both sides and the English militia were described as being very ill-disciplined. There's even reports of them looting and burning out public houses and then turning up for battles drunk. OK,
0: so maybe part of what she's getting at here is she's suggesting that the influence might travel in both directions. I mean, the colonial relationship goes both ways. You don't just have the colonists imposing their will, right? Right. Kind of a two-way street, I suppose. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Uh, Maybe the Irish will make the English worse. We do know that the passage of the Act of Union was, you know, not an exercise in good governance, shall we say. It was notoriously corrupt. Irish MPs were bought off all over the place. Edward's own father ended up voting against it. The process was so
1: unseemly. Yeah, and there was real pressure towards the end of the 18th century on the ascendancy class to prove that they're worthy of their position at the top of Irish society. Um, They weren't yet largely this absentee colonial class of the 19th century that you mentioned, Lucy. Mm. But their position was precarious. And so in the build up to the 1798 rebellion and then, of course, the Act of Union, we see this sort of fragile equilibrium really come asunder, be torn asunder.
0: Yeah. Edgeworth is afraid for her class in this moment and for her society. And we see that come out in the sad fate of Sir Condi Rackrent, the very last of the Rackrent Lords. Now, like Sir Patrick, his ancestor, he loves a drink, particularly whiskey punch. But poor Condy, he's more likely to drink whiskey with his tenants than he is ever to drink wine at Dublin Castle. Mm. He's so out of it most of the time he doesn't even notice that he's being swindled out of his entire estate. And his faithful retainer, Thady, is always on hand to refill his drinking cup.
2: Says Sir Condy to me, Your hand is steadier than mine tonight, old Thady, and that's a wonder. Fill you the horn for me, and so, wishing his honour success, I did. But I filled it, little thinking of what would befall him. He swallows it down and drops like one shot. We lift him up, and he was speechless and quite black in the face. We put him to bed, and in a short time he awakened, raving with a fever on his brain. He was shocking Either to see or hear.
0: Oh, I know, poor old Condi. um The description of Condy's final illness is really striking. Um, Edgeworth doesn't pull her punches; it's horrible. It reads, to me at least, very much like
1: alcohol poisoning. Or am I being anachronistic? Um, no, not really. So, cases of ac- acute intoxication in one form or another have been documented throughout history. And in this era, then, medical men are becoming increasingly interested in the health risks associated with excess.
0: Yeah, I mean, I do know that Edgeworth herself was very much influenced by the English physician Erasmus Darwin. This was the grandfather to Charles. Um, He was a great friend of her father's and he wrote quite a bit about the effects of alcohol on the body and mind in a wonderfully named text called Zoonomia. Love it. I know, published in the late 1790s. In this text, I mean, he discusses lots and lots of things, but he also considers alcohol as a poison and he lists drunkenness among the diseases that he catalogues. Now, we know that this was the product of real, um, you know, clinical analysis because his wife and it had in fact died of excessive alcohol consumption. If this isn't alcoholism that he's
1: describing, though, what is it? Can we use the term I wouldn't use the term yet, and you know, I'm a stickler for my terminology, are, no. um, but I would... Okay, I'll give you this. So Erasmus Darwin was quite ahead of his time in many ways. First of all, he was anti-drink, and as we're going to see in a couple of episodes, many doctors actually later on become deeply involved with the temperance movement of the 19th century. Now Darwin, Erasmus Darwin that is was also sort of unusual because he linked alcohol to not just physical, but also psychological harm. Okay, so as we've seen during the 18th century, most doctors were caught between two views of alcohol. On the one hand, it was believed to have wide-ranging medical benefits, so the phrase drink to your health, that's why we say sláinte in Irish.
0: Yeah, and I mean, you've got like "salut" and salute, and like
1: so many different cultures <laughs> yeah, actually Yeah, yeah exactly. Think about it. So that's one side of things, but then on the other Doctors were identifying a whole range of dysfunctions, disabilities and diseases that they believed very heavy drinking could cause. Now, this included things like chronic flatulence, mm. charming <laughs> epilepsy, and then the big one, gout. OK, like th-
0: that's the big 18th century disease. Yeah. So they're just only then starting to understand that gout might have something to do with... does I. This is actually a genuine question. Do you know, is gout caused by alcohol?
1: I think it's believed to be caused by a sort of um, decadent lifestyle, shall we say. Something we might expect a condi or a Lord Lieutenant to get. Anyway,
0: as we move into the 19th century, I think it's clear that the understanding of the effects of alcohol is evolving, right? And particularly the psychological side of alcoholism starts to be studied in a more systematic way.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, yet again, and as always with history, this shift doesn't happen overnight. But it really starts to take off in the 19th century and the single biggest change we see is um, the development of a commonly held theory of addiction. Now speaking just in very loose terms, because I don't want to bore everyone to death here, if the 18th century was about warning um, people about the physical dangers of excess, by the 19th we see an increasing focus on why people are drinking too much. And we see the shift from blaming these individuals towards some kind of an acceptance that maybe they're suffering from a mental disease.
0: Okay, I know you are, you know, all on the terminology, but (laughs) am I allowed to say alcoholism yet? Is it alcoholism? By the mid-19th century, I'll give it to you. Some doctors are saying it, but not all. All right. We're going to pick up the conversation in the next episode when we're going to talk a bit more about how the dangers of alcohol emerge in works of Gothic literature that are drawing on the growing interest in addiction, insanity and the psychological effect of Alcohol. Mm. Please do subscribe uh, if you'd like to hear more.
1: This podcast has been generously supported by University College Dublin's College of Arts and Humanities, Medicine, Health and Wellbeing Research Strand in conjunction with the UCD Humanities Institute.